Welcome to the Library Safety and Security Podcast with Dr. Steve Albrecht. I'm the very same Dr. Steve Albrecht, and this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. My topic for this half hour is library emergencies, those situations which could be rare or devastating, and those situations which could just be simply irritating. Worst case scenario, library emergencies, we'll talk about a range of possibilities here. As a library supervisor or leader or director, your function and goal, of course, is to keep all staff safe, keep all patrons safe, and keep the facility safe as well. Some things are built in, like fire alarms, burglar alarms, things like that, but some things kind of sneak up on us, like bed bugs in the book drop or plumbing emergencies and things like that. We'll talk about a collection of worst-case scenarios really based on two themes. One is the likelihood and the other is the impact. The likelihood of a fire in your facility is quite low, especially if you have a modern facility. Let's say you moved in a couple of years ago. You've got smoke alarms, you've got smoke detectors, you've got a fire control water system, sprinklers, things like that on the ceiling. And most modern buildings are really built to prevent the possibility of a catastrophic fire. If you look at the possibility of an active shooter or a mass attacker in your library, again, quite rare. We've seen these in small case scenarios and in college libraries and things like that around the country over the years, but libraries tend not to be a topic for, for or a mass shooter is a place for them to go. I've talked about it as a discussion topic for this Library 2.0 webinar series, but it's really a rare possibility, thankfully. If you look at building fires in general, my thoughts, of course, are driven by the February 2020 fire that happened in Porterville, California. Porterville is just outside Fresno. This fire was allegedly set by two 13-year-old teenagers in the children's section of a third-story part of the library. I think the library was built in the 50s in Porterville, and these kids got out, but unfortunately two firefighters that were trying to fight the fire were killed in the blaze, which is very sad. So when I think about fires, one of my concerns for you if you have a multi-story building is do you have a, a floor warden system? A floor warden system is somebody that's a person in charge or a library supervisor or just an employee who has the responsibility to, in a fire situation, the rare possibility that it is, get all the people on that particular floor out of the building, down the stairs, and out of the building safely. We know in certain emergencies, kids have a tendency to hide out when they're fearful. They may go to a restroom or they may hide in some portion of the library building itself or in a corner in the stacks. We may not even see them. So part of the function of the floor warden is to make sure that everybody gets out of the library on that particular floor and look at all the nooks and crannies, restrooms, storage rooms, under desks, things like that to make sure that no kids involved. The floor wardens also may need to get some help to get elderly or disabled patrons down the elevator or down the stairs, certainly in an elevator. Uh, we don't want to use that if the fire is raging in that part of the building. We may still be able to use an elevator if it's not near that portion, but in the best case, we want to use the staircase uh, if there's any doubt as to whether the elevator may be compromised. So the floor warden is also somebody who has to use some kind of enunciation system, whether it's a PA over the telephone or I've seen in some libraries that are kind of old school, they use even a bullhorn. So how does this person get in touch with everybody in that particular floor to get them moving towards the staircase, moving out of the building in a safe way? Where I came from in California years ago, our biggest concern was wildfires, and we had those pretty frequently in the time span of say August, September, October, especially right around Santa Ana wind season when these 70 mile an hour winds would kick up and we'd see these fires come through. 
So there may be an evacuation perspective that you have to take based on what you see on the news media and what you hear from the local fire officials and Office of Emergency Management officials that talk about whether you need to evacuate. So that's also a discussion as the wildfire possibility. If you look at libraries that are built in and around canyons, uh, that's another big concern for wildfires. Uh, typically urban libraries and downtown libraries and places built in a, in a standard sort of city block area are much less susceptible to this, of course. But if you have a rural location or a library that's built on the edge of a canyon, as we've seen in California, especially in Los Angeles, uh, that, that building could be at risk as well for a wildfire. I look at weather events as they affect the library. You may be a shelter-in-place location for a, a, a library city that's very uh, hot. You may be a shelter-in-place facility for a library in a part of the country that's very, very cold. When I look at weather, <clears throat> I know geographically it makes a big difference. Tornadoes in where I am in the Midwest, hurricanes down where my daughter is in, in Florida. We have hot and cold issues around the country depending on the season. And also we have the possibility of, of uh, things created from weather situations where we may need to use our facility to keep folks safe uh, from a first aid standpoint, including flooding and, and things like that. Speaking of flooding, uh, I've seen a lot of libraries that are beautiful buildings uh, built in a turn-of-the-century time that have really, really old plumbing. That's a concern for flooding. Uh, those things tend to break at the worst possible times. We look at, at plumbing emergencies as typically connected to really, really old pipes, things that were installed, you know, lead pipes and things like that, cast iron pipes at the turn of the century that have deteriorated into a, into a huge flood. Oftentimes, too, we see plumbing situations come from kids putting things into the, into the restrooms and into the toilets and causing problems that way. So we definitely, if you have old pipes, want your plumber and your, your plumber response folks on speed dial. I've seen a library that got attacked by bees. That turned into a pretty good size emergency. We had to get people from coming through to the building that would kept walking around as it was uh, the bees were attached to the front entrance. We had to get folks out of there while we got the exterminator. Again, somebody you might never need in your library career uh, could happen next week when the bees decide to use your facility as their storage area. So again, what are our resources? Who do we have on speed dial? Who do we have in our electronic Rolodex, who do we have in our phone system and our collection of records that we can get on the spot to come out to certain types of rare things. One thing I am concerned about when I look at libraries being closed during the pandemic in 2020 is the possibility of burglary. If you think about libraries as having computer systems and projectors and TV sets and flat screens and laptops and tablets, and rare books and DVDs and and uh, video games and things like that that most burglars that are breaking into a library and if I looked at it statistically it would be kids this is a 12 to 20 years old you know teenagers and younger that typically break into a library just want some petty cash or be able to steal some type of, of equipment that they can use or maybe pawn later on if you think about the libraries being closed during the pandemic. We have a situation where some libraries I have been to do not have a burglar alarm. I'm a fan of burglar alarms. I think they work. When I think about burglar alarm response by the police department, they can often come and catch people inside our facilities, especially if we have silent alarms, especially if we don't have ringer alarms that sort of scare people away. One of the problems of ringing alarms is that you would think that that would sort of jettison the burglar or the would-be burglar into running away. It does not. They just work faster. 
the ones that I have talked to in my career just say, I just load up my bag or I put more stuff in my pocket or I shove more things into my jacket and I run out of the building. I don't run off as soon as I hear the burglar alarm. I like motion sensors. I like motion detectors. I like the infrared systems that are in the in the roof of the library in the in the ceiling, so that we can catch people on top of the building if necessary. We can catch people inside the building. We send out a, a alarm notice to an alarm company that monitors. They will call the police, or in certain situations, like on a windy night where they're trying to verify, they'll call the person in charge who's responsible for the facility to make sure they need or don't need to send out the police. So think about the burglary piece. And also the collected vandalism that sometimes comes when teenagers get inside a, a library after hours and the damage that they can do. That's why I like cameras inside and outside the library, exterior cameras to see who's coming in, and certainly interior cameras that, that work on a 24-hour basis so we can catch people that are doing these types of things. The possibility of robbery in a library is quite low. I've not seen libraries that have had robberies inside their facilities. I've certainly seen them in the parking lot after. Sometimes you think about the robbery situation that's happening in the adjacent parking lot, especially after hours. Uh, we always want to remind staff to go out in pairs or in groups, follow the buddy system, get out to their cars at, at the end of the evening safely. We want to make sure that if we have a parking uh, garage situation that we have contract security if we can or extra patrols by the police if that's a necessity based on, on what's happening there. I always think about IT systems as a, as a worst-case scenario for libraries, and I think about this ransomware business. This was not something we even discussed you know, as near back as five years ago, but the ransomware piece now has attacked several libraries, including in my home state in Missouri, where there is a, a, the system itself is held hostage by some outside operator, typically somebody coming from an Eastern Bloc country or a third world country that's got a stranglehold over the IT system, and they demand usually bitcoins to pay it off, sometimes $20,000 to un unlock or unloosen the library system. I have seen articles from security professionals, cybersecurity professionals that suggest you, quote, just pay the ransom, unquote. That's not something I, I like to think about. I think it only encourages more the, these types of ransomware attacks. I understand the wisdom. Sometimes people say, well, it's just money. We want our system back and we'll, we'll pay up. I think the larger picture there is we go back to a solid IT backup system that, that is backed up every day and that has a remote offsite or backup to the cloud. In the old days, it used to be tapes, but now it's backed up to the cloud. Where in a worst case scenario, our library system would only be down one day if we had an actual attack like that. So if you're a library director in, in thinking about these issues, get a hold of the IT people in your city or county. Get a hold of the IT specialist or representative that, that represents your particular library facility. Make sure that the library IT room itself, the server room, is protected. That needs a different set of locks than the standard locks that we have. Not everybody should be able to get in there. And then the second part is, do we have the kind of relationship with, with our IT department where they're really vigilant about these types of things, viruses, hacking, cyber security issues, uh, ransomware, so that stuff doesn't happen. Bomb threats, uh, those kind of come and go based on sort of the political winds that blow. Sometimes they're very popular in some, some time of the year in certain parts of the country, other times not so much. We think about bomb threats as, as being connected to real bombing events that we had, guys like the Unabomber and the Oklahoma City bombing and the Boston Marathon bombing. But in reality, bomb threats are hoaxes. Uh, the vast majority, and I'm not going to say 100%, but very, very close, vast majority of bomb threats are hoaxes because I know from my work 
in workplace violence prevention that bombers make bombs and bomb threat makers make bomb threats. Now this is an argument I get into a lot with police officers and fire departments and firefighters. They want to evacuate the building and search for a bomb. I say that's not a great idea because it sends a message to the bomb threat maker that he or she can shut us down with a phone call or an email or some other sort of cryptic way that they tell us that there's a bomb in the building. What I typically do in bomb threat situations is I look at the past to see if there's been any kind of sort of disgruntled patron or ex-employee issue or sometime domestic violence thing that may have spurred this type of threat. And then I say, okay, let's find the supervisors, gather them together, and then have them do a cursory search of the building inside and out to see if there's anything that even remotely resembles a suspicious package or device. In that case, we would evacuate the facility. But otherwise, I do not evacuate the facility for just a bomb threat that's coming over the phone. Now, when people hear me say that, they say, you don't care about the staff, Steve. You don't care about the patrons. And of course I do. I've spent my entire adult life trying to keep people safe. And I look at that situation based on the reality that most often bombs that go off, there was no warning prior to the bombing. If you look at Oklahoma City or the Marathon bombing in Boston, or the, the Unabomber, no bomb threats prior to these explosions. So when I look at the bomb threat, it's, it's always a hoax designed to disrupt the operation. It's typically done by a kid or somebody who's mentally ill or somebody who really wants to get revenge against the library system, and they do this a way to disrupt things. I would say calling the police or the sheriff is a good idea, but I wouldn't necessarily evacuate the facility unless we found a suspicious package or device. One thing I think it gets sort of short attention in terms of, of hazards and emergencies is a power failure. It may be triggered by something that happens in your electrical system for the building, the high voltage system, or something that happens to one of the panels, but more likely it's something that happens around the corner. Somebody hits a transformer or crashes into a power pole, or there's some type of weather, weather event that, that disables the power in that part of the community, lightning strikes, something like that. It doesn't make sense to me to put a very expensive diesel generator outside of a library if it's not necessary to keep the building operating. Um, I do look at libraries that have generator systems and that's because they're oftentimes connected to city hall or county building where there's an operational center there and the library is part of their emergency operations or something like that. Then a power supply, a backup power supply makes perfect sense. I think about first aid events in the library, and I'm back to my conversation, which I've been having for several years now, about the value and the need for tourniquets. Tourniquets save lives, especially in bleeding events. Somebody can be seriously injured in a, a bleeding event, and we can save their life with a tourniquet. There's sort of new thinking about tourniquets. There's the idea in the old days that if you put a tourniquet on somebody's arm or leg, never around the neck, of course, around their arm or leg, that, that somehow we would cut off the blood supply and the nerve damage would be permanent and that they would lose their limb. Uh, what we're discovering, basically from our time in the Iraq War and Afghanistan wars and, and wars overseas, is that the tourniquet process itself, if done correctly, placed two or three inches above the wound and tightened down to stop the bleeding, and also when the patient says, ouch, we know it's working, that we can keep the tourniquet on for up to two hours. That tends to be the golden time span, a two-hour window of where there's not permanent damage to their nerve, nerve center or their, their uh, blood system in terms of the amputation possibility. So as a result, I'm putting tourniquets into first aid kits in libraries. I put them in the AED machines. Uh, I ask staff if they have any kind of medical training whatsoever. They may want to keep them in their locker or someplace where they could use it in an emergency. 
So I've seen tourniquets be very useful for things like parking lot accidents in the in the library, where somebody gets hit by a car, or a, a child falls from some you know high level like a staircase or something like that, and has a a type of injury where they may have a compound fracture or something like that, where there's a lot of bleeding. Um, there could be any situation involving a gunshot or a knife wound for somebody where a, a tourniquet would be useful. Now, typically, paramedics are going to respond to do that, but in some situations, you may be at a place in a, a rural location where there's just not that accessibility to medical care. Knowing how to use a tourniquet is a very valuable device, and you can see online, uh, watch good YouTube videos on this, and also get some instruction from the people that make these. The average tourniquet, the good ones that have a windlass, a, a tightening down bar, and, a, and a, a locking strap cost about $10. You can get them on Amazon. Uh, tend to be ones that are kind of combat oriented. It's a, a fairly wide nylon band, and I like those a lot. They're very small. They're inexpensive. They can go on lots of first aid kits. I think about first aid in two probably of our most vulnerable populations, three if you count opiate overdosers, but I would say children for sure and the elderly. How do we get our elderly patients to um, a location where we may have to bring them down a flight of stairs or carry them down through the elevator or, or put them in a chair or somehow wheel them out if they don't have their own wheelchair, if they're injured and they need, they need immediate medical care. Uh, I think about for that population, their vulnerability to being knocked down or that, that um, they can get pretty serious orthopedic injuries in situations where they're bumped. Uh, also, if we look at children, uh, kids that jump off stuff and, and fall down the stairs or do something inside the library, that involves either you know their own accident or, or kind of a horseplay thing where they can get serious injuries as well, head injuries, orthopedic injuries. How do we take care of those kids? How do we get paramedics to that situation? How do we stabilize those kids until the paramedics arrive? Again, all part of your discussion about possible worst-case events could never happen in the library, could happen tomorrow. We want to have a policy and an approach, and we want to have sort of level-headed stress-free thinking about it before it happens so that we can put our plans into operation should it ever happen. That third possibility of the needle stick and the person that, that has overdosed on, on uh, heroin typically, and usually they use our restrooms or the restrooms outside the library or in the park across the street or something like that, or they have uh, done it in their car or in some quiet part of the library. I've, I found these folks in the stacks and other areas. That's an immediate call to paramedics, and what we see now is that paramedics are routinely giving people that they come across who are unconscious and under the age of, say, 35, Narcan. Narcan is a nasal spray that goes to work immediately. It, it operates within one to two minutes. It is an opiate antagonist. It finds opiate molecules in the person's system and kills them and then brings these folks back to life. Um, I've used it on people that I thought were dead, and they pop back to life, and it was quite amazing. Um, the opiate user with the, with the uh, overdose sometimes may have the needle still in their arm or leg or between their toes. So we look at them as kind of one big um, hazmat situation where there's a possibility of a needle stick for anybody that comes in, including staff or paramedics. Certainly want to save these people's lives if we have access to the Narcan, but Paramedics will show up and just as a matter of course give Narcan to people under the age of 35 because they don't typically anticipate that population is going to have a heart attack or a stroke like somebody my age. So we may see paramedics just roll up and that's the first thing that they do since they suspect if it is an opiate overdose that this will help bring this person back to life, get them back to respiration, especially if they can get oxygen to them. And the other thing is 
If it's not an opiate overdose, it's some other medical emergency, then the opiate um, Narcan um, for the opiate overdose won't have any effect on there. It's a harmless drug if they're not, if they're not in an opiate overdose situation. I think about slip and falls. Um, there's, there's the cynic in me that suggests sometimes these are staged accidents. I've seen videos of people, and that's another reason I like videos in libraries. Staging accidents, they put something on the floor, they fall, and then you know they call their favorite plaintiff attorney. But most often this is related to you know kids messing around or elderly patrons or people that are sort of lost their balance or not paid attention in some situation involving staircases or walkways or things where they have to change from one footing location to another from carpet to tile and things like that. I think about liability prevention from that standpoint and just making sure that you've talked with your facilities people and said, is there anything that we have which could be a concern? I noticed in uh, San Diego where I was from, the city has spent, I think, around several million dollars just s settling injuries connected to bulging sidewalks. So if you have a sidewalk in front of your facility that's got a tree in it and it's bulged the sidewalk, there's a liability concern there for slip and fall that we can make on folks that are on bicycles or scooters or skateboards or the elderly with walkers and things like that where we've got some significant liability. So talk to the facilities people, talk to the city and county folks that look at the hardscape like that, staircases, sidewalks, uh, asphalt, how it connects to the to the property, what we have in parking lots, speed bumps, things like that, that there could be a slip and fall concern for us. Domestic violence as a library concern is something I think about too when the victim and the perpetrator both come in at the same time. Uh, I've seen many library employees with good courage and a really good rapport relationship talk to a victim of domestic violence. They've managed to figure that out through their interactions. When the perpetrator is not there and able to give them some support, access to things like a domestic violence hotline, either locally or nationally, give them access to domestic violence shelter information. So that's been very useful. I've seen uh, libraries put domestic violence and human trafficking uh, brochures and information into the women's restrooms, which I think is also a great step as well. Anytime you have domestic violence concerns, it's oftentimes driven by the fact that the courts have said things like, well, use the library as the drop-off point for a child custody issue, and there's always certain energy and, and a kind of emotional dynamic that comes into that situation. So we may need to pay attention or monitor if, if that's what we see outside the facility or inside the facility that these types of exchanges of the kids is happening. Gang violence, again, pretty rare in the, inside the library. I've seen it certainly outside the library in parking lots and things like that, especially in locations where we've got you know teenagers and, and younger adults that are engaged in that kind of behavior. If we suspect gang violence, we typically see it in tagging or graffiti inside our library facility, restrooms, books, they, they tag certain parts and then they engage in kind of a tagging graffiti war where the rival gangs will come in and scratch out what's on there and that sort of creates a lot of sort of tension about who owns that particular part of, of the turf of the facility. If you see these things coming into your library, you got to pull them, you got to get maintenance and facilities to come in, paint over and fix these things so it doesn't allow that type of environment to continue. Car accidents in the parking lot. I've seen these happen where, where someone wasn't paying attention. They hit somebody. Kids tend to dart in and out of the library, dart in and out of their cars, dart from the sidewalk to the, to the parking lot. Again, things we want to pay attention to for um, kind of our outside vigilance and, and make sure that we have good line of sight and that there's good lighting in the parking lot uh, in the evening hours and things like that. Speed bumps may be something that has to get installed if people are racing through our parking lots in their cars.
But again, that may involve uh, a facilities change. It may involve some police uh, patrolling in the particular parking lot to make sure folks drive carefully. And then also some vigilance on our part. One of the things that I didn't think about when I was writing my library security book back in 2015 is the group event. And I had a nice conversation with Chet Price, who is the library safety and security manager in Jacksonville, Florida. He's a former Indianapolis cop. And he created a really useful form, which I'm going to put into my new library security book. Uh, the Safe Library is a book I'm working on right now. It'll be out in the fall. And in the appendix, I'm going to put a copy of his library emergency event plan in there. And what he created was a, a document that says anytime we have a large number of folks coming in the library, it could be kids for a reading session, it could be a magic show, it could be a movie night, it could be a guest speaker, it could be a library employee putting on a, a large program you know, involving music or something like that that they've been working on for a long time. It could be an author coming in to speak. And maybe the author is a little bit controversial. Maybe the subject is controversial. We expect a lot of people there. What Chet Price created, and I think it's, it's part of his genius, is a form that we create before the event. And it talks about everything, like evacuation and whether or not we need to have police on hand or security or paramedics, depending on the number of people there. We could have 300 people in a library. We could have 25. So what he has said in this document is, Let's look at all the emergency evacuation and, and sort of staging areas and what we need to think about about electric power and, and emergency response to things and where people set up. All these things to think about for something that may never happen. No, no bad thing ever happens in your facility. But when we set up sort of a, a stipulation or a guideline that says 25 or more people coming into our library for an event, we need to have this emergency plan. It could be quite basic. It could be quite detailed depending on who's there. I mean, if you have the governor of the of your state coming to the library, it's different than if you're having a, a story hour. If you're having a, an author come in that's that's uh, got some controversial topics, could be different than just somebody coming in doing a reading. So, when I think about the value of these emergency plans, it's for something which may never happen. And this is what we've been talking about for the entire podcast: it could never happen, or it could happen, and we need to be prepared for it. I always think. And this is sort of based on my training from back in the old days about what the plaintiff's attorneys say for certain things in terms of our preparation. Did you have a written plan in place? Did you have uh, knowledge about any first responder issues? Did you have private security or did you have a security guard rented for the event? Was there adequate lighting? These types of things are what the plaintiff's attorneys look like look at all the time. What we want to have is a response to the rare possibility of, a, of an emergency event in one of, our, uh, one of our gatherings, but we want to do it in such a way that you know, it doesn't interfere with the good times that the folks are having. you got 150 school kids coming off of you know, five school buses. There's a parking issue, and there's a way that we want to think about how we protect them and, and the buses coming in and going out of the facility. Maybe we need to hire security to direct traffic for some span of time through the parking lot if it's busy. So these are the types of things which are addressed in an emergency event plan. And again, make a criteria decision as to when you think you need one of those, 25 people or more, or you look at certain things where we have maybe more at-risk population like preschoolers, or we have a program designed for the elderly or something like that, which they may have mobility concerns, and especially in an emergency. So when I look at emergency 
situations in libraries, it's easy to be sort of the chicken little, which is you always cry about the sky is falling and, and none of the stuff that I predicted ever happens. And in my perfect world, that would be great. I don't want anything bad to, that we've talked about ever to happen. But I also want you to be prepared and think about the things that you need to pay attention to, especially as a library director. And if you're a library employee, you can contribute to our knowledge of safety, especially if you hear things or see things that maybe your boss misses. You see some sort of hazard. You see some sort of situation where there may be something that's, that's broken or or could put somebody at risk of falling or hurting themselves or becoming a first aid event. If you see some type of conflict between groups of teenagers in the library that, that your boss needs to know about, we're all in charge of safety and security. It's not just a one-person thing. So we think about, you know, my boss is supposed to be everywhere and see everything. That doesn't always happen. So we always ask employees, you're the eyes and ears of our facility just like the bosses are. you got to tell us about stuff which we need to address. And the other part is, we can get a lot of information from the patrons as well. There are things that they see that we do not see. When we think about patrons coming into the facility, we think about patrons seeing things in the corners or in the stacks or someplace that we are not necessarily looking all the time. They can be just as useful to point out things that are security issues or safety hazards which we need to address, whether it's a, a person and behavior or whether it's some sort of hazardous condition. You know, there's sort of an electrical wire or a leaking something or they smell gas or something like that, which we don't necessarily notice. They can be the ones that get after, you know, our, our knowledge of this by coming over and talking to us and so we can address it right away. So I appreciate any kind of input and, and information I can get from the patrons. I appreciate any kind of in, input or information I can get from the staff. They both see things that necessarily the, the, the library supervisors, managers, and directors may not see. When I think about worst-case scenarios, let's keep it that way. Worst-case scenario, but the rare possibility of it happening, that's the way I'd like to have it. It's rare, but because we live in the real world and liability happens the minute we open our doors, we've got to have a response to it. So my thanks to the producer of the Library Safety and Security podcast, Steve Hargenen. For more information, visit the Library 2.0 website at library20.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht. Thanks for listening to the Library Safety and Security Podcast.